0: hi let's let's pray together father we thank you for this day we know that it is the day that you have made and the call on that psalm is for us to rejoice and be glad in it and so we're not only glad for the day you've made but we're glad that you made the day that you put us in here today father to be able to worship you and to glorify you i pray lord that you would uh, just remove me from this um, preaching this morning that we would hear from you and from your word. And as Al prayed pray this morning, Father, I pray that you would bring a revival to this country. And I pray that even today as we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 6 and we learn some details about David and his effort to bring the ark back to the midst of the people, I pray that we would learn just as David needed to learn that you desire to be in the midst of your people. And I pray that this will be a desire of this country. So Father, I open our eyes to your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter six. 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter six this morning. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter six, this text is all about David in his attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, where it actually belonged. But last week, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 25, so there's a few things that were very important that took place between 1 Samuel 25 and 2 Samuel chapter 6, and a few of them are, at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul and Jonathan ended up losing their lives in 1 Samuel 31, and in the first chapter of 2 Samuel chapter 1, David hears the news. In chapter 2 he becomes king over Judah and then in 2nd Samuel chapter 5 he becomes king over the entire nation and it is exactly in 2nd king and 2nd Samuel chapter 5 that he not only becomes king but right after that he goes into a little bit of a battle against the Philistines and verse 25 says this David did just as the Lord commanded him and he struck down the Philistines from Gibeon all the way together now you remember this as we go through second Samuel chapter 6 verses one through three or to, to five right four right now David again assembled all the best men in Israel 30,000 in number David and all the men who were with him traveled to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God which was also called by the name of the Lord the heavens Armies, who sits enthroned between the cherubim that are on it. They loaded the ark of God on a new cart and carried it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Asa and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart. They brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab on the hill. Ahiah was also walking in front of the ark. So this is a little bit of the background of what's going on here. Now, if if you read this, and you read the first, perhaps the first 11 verses of this, this chapter, you realize that strategies are very important. Strategies are very important, especially when you are the king of Israel representing the king of the universe. So when David takes the throne here, and he's the king now over the nation, he realizes that the Ark of the Covenant is not in the midst of the people. And actually, it hasn't been in the midst of the people for about 70 years. If you go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, you realize that the Philistines came and they took the Ark, and 70 years have passed by the moment David is sitting on the throne. Now, this is way before David was born. So you realize that in, in the sense of David now as a new king, strategies are going to be extremely significant, and he does. And the first thing he does is he obeys the Lord to go against the Philistines and to instruct them, as chapter 5, verse 25 says. Now, the defeat of the Philistines probably opened David's eyes to the reality that the Ark of the, of the Lord w- was not present and even though that was a historical moment, it was not in there. And the ark was a representation of not only God's covenant with the people, but also that God's presence dwelt among the people. You ask me, why, why is this a historical moment? Well, I think I just said to you, First Samuel chapter 4, 70 years ago, the ark has been removed from what it was supposed to be the most important piece in the midst of this nation. It reminded them of God's promises. It reminded them of God's presence in the midst of His people. The theme here that David is going to face right now is actually, is a central theme in his entire life, which is the presence of God, not only in his personal life, but also in the life of the nation of Israel. So what happens here is they travel to Baal, which most likely was a city called Kiriath-Jerim in Joshua chapter 15. The city was about nine miles west of Jerusalem. And, and that's exactly based on what our text says that Abinadab, Abinadab's house was located. Now, we, have even, we haven't even dived into this te- text yet, but there's, I think there's a, a principle here. And there's an application that the desire for God's presence as well as the pursuit of God's holiness should be nothing less than our greatest desire in life. Now, to have this as the first major task that a king would, would face is nothing more than a royal king before the creator of the universe. He needs to realize that if that's going to be a nation that belongs to God, God needs to be the centerpiece of this nation. And I think as an application for this nation, the desire for God's presence as well as the pursuit of God's holiness should be the centerpiece of our lives. Now, let me give you some historical significance here about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark symbolized God's presence and symbolized the relationship between God and His people. We talked about that as well as His promises in the people's responsibilities towards God. Now, uh, Woodhouse, who is a-, a theologian, he writes this. It says, "...the Ark was a gold-plated wooden box approximately, approximately three feet nine inches long by two feet and three inches both wide and high." It had been made in the days of Moses according to God's instruction. According to God's instruction, remember this for a moment. It was fitted with gold rings through which gold-plated wooden poles were placed by which it was to be carried. On top of the ark was a pure gold cover with a solid gold cherub at each end. And that comes from Exodus chapter 25. Inside of the ark were the stone tablets on which were engraved in the words of the Ten Commandments, beginning with the words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And obviously the words are not there, but the reason why he brought them out of the house of slavery was because God was going to give them a house of freedom. So the ark here... Was truly a covenant that represented the unbreakable promises that God had made to his people. And there are a few things here I think we need to remember. First, the Ark was, the Ark of the Covenant actually bears God's name. If you look at right here, the text says that it's called the Ark of God he is not only the founder of this ark, but he's also the one who revealed himself to his people and placed the ark as a reminder to the nation of Israel that he was the God, the creator of all things. Second, the text says here that he sits enthroned on top of this, on top of this ark between the two cherubs. And what David wanted the nation to recognize here was that the enthronement of God in their midst was a necessity in order for them to be successful in their spiritual walk with God. You cannot have a spiritual walk with God without God. Just like this nation cannot have a spiritual revival without the presence of God in their midst. You can have your cake and eat it too. Or in this case, you cannot have God and expect the blessings, which is usually what we do. Now, if you look with me in verse 3, verse 3 says that they loaded the ark Listen to this. They loaded the ark and they used a new cart. Now, we don't have a lot of time to look through Exodus and, and Numbers chapter 4, but here's what Chisholm said. The fact that they used a new cart suggests the sincerity and part of their recognition that the ark was deserving a special treatment. However, and here's the key, by loading the ark onto a cart, David actually violated the instructions that were given to the nation of Israel all the way in the book of Exodus and all the way in the book of Numbers. So David is violating this, and we know this because later on the Philistines, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, would take and remove this away. And right now, David has violated the instructions, and we'll see that in just a little bit what that looks like. All because, according to the law, the priests were the ones supposed to carry the ark as the ark was moved. Now, let's go to verse 5. And we'll look at David's celebration here. David's celebration. While David and all Israel were energetically celebrating before the Lord, giving, a singing, and playing various stringed instruments, tambourines, rattles, and cymbals. So there's a huge party going on here. They're bringing this ark, they put it in a new cart, they have the best intentions in their process, and they're celebrated. It's a full party down the road towards Jerusalem. Remember, nine miles they have to bring this ark back to them. So, excitement seems to be what's dictating the actions here. Now, if you're like me, it is okay to be excited sometimes. You watch a game, you get excited about maybe your team's about to win, and you get excited, or y- y- your son's about to win a race, or whatever that may be. The excitement is just part of life. But here's what we make mistakes in our own Christian life when we let excitement dictate what God wants from us. And here's where I think there's a lesson here: God's work must be done in God's way in order to secure God's blessing. If that is true then our worldly methods will not accomplish a divine task. So my reminder, my warning sign for you is beware of adopting anything the world brings and tells you that that is a godly endeavor when it's not even part of His word. So they're celebrating down the road, excitement takes place, and then, I don't love this part, but this is what happens— disaster knocks at David's door. And Uzzah's disobedience here is extremely important. So here's what it says, verse 6. And When they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and grabbed hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord was so furious with Uzzah that he killed him on the spot for his negligence. He died right there beside the ark of God. Now, imagine with me for a second—the greatest celebration in the nation of Israel. They have a new king. This guy has been enthroned there. He's walking down the road all the way from the threshing floors of Nacon all the way to Jerusalem, nine miles down the road. And the oxen stumble, and the ark's about to fall. And Uzzah reaches out and grabs the ark. And you would say—you would probably say the same thing that I would—and all of a sudden. This man is dead next to the ark. Naken here was a threshing floor because that's where the place where they brought the wheat to separate the wheat from the shaft. And that's where Uzzah reaches out and grabs hold of the ark in order to prevent from falling and disaster happens. His actions here, they seem... Innocent. They seem insignificant at the moment. And I suspect, like I said, that everybody watching was very glad that Uzzah put his hands on the ark so the ark wouldn't touch the ground. There are three other individuals in the Bible. Nabad. You know the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. And you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts chapter 5, all of them were struck dead by God for being negligent to his word. Uzzah's death here happened because of an error. Now, here's where you need to know there's an error here. Because it's really easy to say, God, are you sure about this? But what is the error here? Bergen, which is a commentary, he says, this the error was to ignore God's instructions given by God directly for to not to touch the ark and for violating the pattern of reference established by God Himself through His Word in relationship to His holiness." God had given them instructions of how to carry the ark. It wasn't supposed to be done by hands. It was supposed to be done by the Levites holding the poles that would be placed inside of those rings, and they would carry the ark together. And now Uzzah puts his hand in there, and boom, tragedy happens. Now you're thinking, that's an unfair God. Now let me reverse the question. If God had told them how to carry the ark that they were supposed to assemble and take by the Levites and put the poles in there through the golden rings and do all the process, if God had told the nation of Israel how to do this and they did not do it like Uzzah just did and God did not punish him, would God be a righteous God? Because if God told him and told the nation that that's how we need to do things and they do not do it, then God needs to keep his word, otherwise he's not God. But the question becomes, how will the new king respond? And I think there is an application here for all of us. And the application is very simple. Every decision made matters to God. Every single one of them. What we do is just as important as how we do it. So obedience to God's word is more important than good intentions. Us as good intentions, we're not God's intentions. And here's where we see what happens to the new king. Verse 8. David was angry. What? Again? Is this 1 Samuel 25 all over again? Didn't David learn his lesson last week? That was not a good thing to be angry? But, But look at this. David was angry because the Lord attacked Uzzah. So he called that place Perez-Uzzah, which means it's name to this very day. David was afraid of the Lord that, the day, that day and said, how will the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So David's anger in verse 8 here is actually very similar to, to the anger that he demonstrated last week. But look at this. In his anger, he names the place Peres uzzah which is the outburst, literally means the outburst of God against Uzzah. Now, can you imagine every time you walk by and you have to say, where you go, I'm going to press Uzzah. That's ah, a great place to go. Just make sure you go around. Perhaps the name here should, should have been, if, if David had some good friends around him, perhaps the name should have been this. And the, the friend would probably whisper in his ear, say, David, I have a better suggestion for you. Here's what the name should have been. Not Perez, Azah, but maybe the name should be this. My lack of attention to God's word caused somebody else to die. Because he's the king. He leads the nation. He's responsible for what happens. But no, David allows his anger now to turn into fear. Not only he's angry towards God, but his anger now becomes fear. And Brueggemann actually says this, which is fascinating. He says, the fear generated by this event should should be seen as positive. So there's a little bit of a, a, a good thing going on here, but here's the reason. For when people are no longer awed, respectful, or fearful of God's holiness, the community is put to risk. So if your pastors come over here and they teach you God's Word, no fear and no reverence about God's holiness, then that's the time that the pastors need to go and somebody else needs to take the pulpit. And the king was the same. He needs to lead the nation as if God is actually guiding him to be able to make decisions. And so David turns his anger towards a reverential fear of God. But not only that, his fear now turns into a change of mind. Anybody else goes through that process? You get angry, and anger brings fear, and fear makes you change your mind about the decisions you want to make. Listen to what he says. For that reason here, David abandons the idea of now, I'm not sure anymore if I want to bring this thing back to Jerusalem because look at what has happened. And so he leaves this ark into Obed-Edom's house for three months. And according to First Chronicles chapter 15, Obed-Edom was a Levite. His mistake to leave the ark there, perhaps without even knowing, will be three months from that moment a blessing to him. This is so important here because David's unsuccessful attempt here to bring the ark comes from a disobedient to God's word and the pattern that God has established, especially in Exodus 25, which David should have known, where the Levites need to take the ark, David, not you, Not somebody else, but the Levites. And I think if you were honest with yourself, and if I was honest with myself, and if David was here in our midst, and he was honest about his situation, I think he would say that those three months were probably the hardest months, and at the same time, months that God used to shape his own heart towards making right decisions. My pastor used to say, sometimes God needs to put you on the bench. Go sit down, go think about what you're doing. And I think we too here, we're called as an application to serve the king, but we must do it with fear and trembling. Psalm 211. And fear here is not a fear that I'm afraid of this God who's so powerful that I, I, I think he's going to hurt me. It's a fear that's a, a, a worshipful submission to God that responds to him and his character with the highest level of respect and expresses dependence on God's word with the implication that we will obey him in order, listen, in order to please him and if he wills, to bless us we so often do the opposite don't we we think i'm going to have faith in god so i can be blessed by god but isn't that what david is not saying now we've learned a few things about his unsuccessful attempt so let's look at the positive now verse 12 and 13 king david was told the ark the lord has blessed the family of Obed-Edom and everything he owns because of the, the Ark of the Lord. So David went and joyfully brought the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. Those who carried the Ark of, of the Lord took six steps and then sacrificed an ox and a fettling calf. Now imagine hearing the news that that which in your eyes three months ago was a curse, now is becoming a blessing to a family where the ark ended up staying by accident. His household is being blessed, and David realizes one thing I believe, that the whole nation could benefit from the blessing of God being in their midst. So after three months, after David's anger and fear and change of mind, the text now says that he joyfully Goes, goes to Obed-Edom's house to bring the ark back. And that is why joy was followed here, I believe, by a reverential fear of God. Just like in First Chronicles 15, 26, as the Levites carrying the ark took six steps and then an ox and a fetaling calf would be sacrificed. Now, can you imagine nine miles? Just, just think with me for a second. Just think. one, two, three, four five six sacrifice one two three four five six sacrifice now their sacrifice probably took a lot longer than the three seconds i stopped here can you imagine nine miles of a reverence to god The text seems here to indicate, and I just want to make a little a little point here. If you read this, it seems to indicate that David is the one sacrificing the, the, the animals. And I don't think that's what's taking place here at all. I think David is the one in charge, as the king should. If you go to 1 uh, Chronicles, you realize that that the Levites were the ones actually taking the ark and organizing the procession and doing what the Levites were supposed to do. So when you read this, just remember David is the one who is in charge? And the sacrifices here—they were actually made um, because of atonement. They were, this was, they were atoning uh, for their sins here, just like Leviticus chapter one says. And it also answers David's own question from verse nine, when he says, "How can the ark of the Lord coming to me?" Here's the answer: the answer is only by the atoning, by the atonement being made. God is providing them the possibility of God being in their midst again, and they're celebrating with the animal sacrifices and the peace offerings that they will do in just a moment. And here's what happens, verse 14 and 15. Now David, and we look at the joyful celebration going on by David. Now David, wearing a linen ephod, linen was dancing with all his strength before the Lord. David and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord, shouting and blowing trumpets. So the party, once again, is going. And this celebration here was so intense that Woodhouse in this commentary, he says, the significance of this moment was elusive. He says this linen method linen was used by David to suggest that his royal status was inferior here to his role as God's servant and in the servant of God's people. Which means God has placed his royalship under in submission to God to become in this moment a servant of God and a servant to the people of God. He literally got down from his horse. That's why I have said in the past, I have the privilege to be a pastor and I have the privilege to be a missionary for many years. But at the end of the day, when we walk out of here to that together, I'm just as important as you are and you're just as important as I am. Because we are all sheep in God's flock, so the celebration here was significant, and this is David. This was David. David's idea, but look at this. David is not doing this by himself. The text says that all people in Israel were doing this together with them, and they were celebrating down the road, and dancing and singing and all those things. But it's, I want to. I want to make a side note here because from where I come from, if you go to a church on Sunday nights, and I know I want to make a distinction, this is not a church service. This is actually not even worship in a tabernacle or in the temple. But if you go to Brazil, and you go to a church service on Sunday morning, there will probably be some type of dancing and singing and all that stuff going on right here, just as part of the service. And many churches do that. This idea here. It's not a worship before the Lord. They're not in the temple, they're not in the tabernacle. This is not worship here. They're celebrating because God's coming back to them. So biblically, here's what you need to know. We'll never be able to find, there's no, no, no dancing in the Bible in the context of true worship of God, like in the temple or tabernacle. That's, that's never a reference in here. But we do have prayer. We do have communion, we do have preaching, and we do have fellowship. And why am I telling you this? Because sometimes we look at this text and we say, okay, see see, see what's allowed in here? No, this is not a worship service. There's no reference in the Bible for dancing. And I tell you that just to make a point. Just like David failed to communicate to the people bringing the ark the first time, we, as pastors and leaders, we need to tell you what the biblical mandate is. Because according to this book, God has left everything for us in here. He's not only giving us everything pertaining to life and godliness, but he's left his word so we can learn from it. But here's what I find interesting about this text. Not only they're dancing and singing, God is going to introduce a new character now in the story. And what happens is her idea of what's taking place by God's ark coming back is very different than the entire nation of Israel. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord entered the city, Saul's daughter, Michal, looked out the window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him. Now, did you notice how everything changed here from celebration to being despised? The procession of a nation against the vision of one woman? Listen to what, how the text described this lady. First of all, she is not identified as David's wife here. She is identified as Saul's daughter and this phrase here is going to happen twice more in verse twenty twenty three, which means that the author here is giving us an indication of how god wants us to see this whole situation from his eyes second mccall does not mention the ark of the ark of god once she is what my grandpa used to say that she's got horse vision she, she can't see very far. She's focused in one thing, and she's focused on that thing forever, which is not the ark and the glory of God coming back to the nation, but how she perceives the actions of her husband David to be. And third, consequently, she despises him in her heart. Not only in action, but in her heart. Which is far worse because now she's harboring all those bad thoughts and feelings against her husband. But David continues to celebrate. Verse 17 through 19. They brought the ark of the Lord and put it in its place in the middle of the tent that David had pitched. Then David offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. When David finished offering burnt sacrifices and peace offerings, he pronounced a blessing over the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. The same description that was done before when they described the ark. Verse 19, He then handed out to each member of the entire assembly of Israel, both men and women, a portion of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake. Then all the people went home now without knowing that his wife has already despised david's action in her heart he's now blessing the nation he's placing the ark the text says in its place where it belongs and he's probably remember from a time way before he was born 70 years back that that ark should never have left the nation of israel the priests are continuing to offer burnt sacrifices and peace offerings here They're they're doing those things to atone for the sins of the people by appeasing God's wrath here, as well as to offer praise and thanksgiving to him. And all the sacrifices here in the mind of David for nine miles straight, plus the time they arrived in the city of Jerusalem is now thinking that if Obed-Edom in the nation of Israel has been blessed, I want that blessing to my own house, so I need to go home. And that's exactly what he does. Verse 20. When David went home to pronounce a blessing on his own house, listen to what happened. Michal, Saul's daughter, came out to meet him. Now, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, she's not even letting this guy get inside of the house. She, she's willing to risk her own reputation to cast blame on David for his own actions. She said, "How the king of Israel has distinguished himself this day." He has exposed himself today before his servant', his servant slave girls, the way a vulgar fool, Nabal, it's familiar. A vulgar fool, my due. Instead of blessing his family now, David has outside of his own house he has to deal with a wife that's not pleased with David's own actions because she can only see a few things here. And first, what she can see is that she watched David coming down the road dancing, the text says, she took offense at him by not presenting himself or being dressed because he was wearing a linen effort by not being dressed like a king would be. She was, so she's taking offense on the way she, he's dressed. And that way, the way that David was dressed actually was in her mind humiliating for a guy who was a king. Perhaps she has never had an example in her own life with her own father being a humble king. We should call this McCall Syndrome, which goes like this. We're more preoccupied with what others think instead of what God thinks of us. Can you imagine for a second? It's not part of my illustration here. But can you imagine for a second, Pastor David, the elders, we meet you outside every Sunday morning. And you come in through the door. And we're like, yeah, that's, that's not at, to the right. That doesn't have the right, the right outfit. You can come in to the back. Yeah, let's go to the sanctuary. Oh, you're going to go to the left. We're going we're to stream the service because you're not dressed appropriately. In her mind, she thinks she has a reason to tell David that he's not dressed appropriately. And that's not how a king should act. But wasn't he acting like a king? Praising the Lord? bringing God's presence back to the nation, allowing the people to realize that King King David is not better than they are. Second, did you notice that she makes no mention of the ark once again? She makes no mention of the ark. The second time she has the chance to do something and say something about the ark, she mentions nothing. She shows no joy in knowing, listen to this, in knowing that God's presence is right there. She could see from her window And the only thing she could see from all the 30,000 people that went down to get the ark, plus all the other people that marched with him, she could only see one thing, which was David dressed up casually as he brings the glory of God into the nation again. You talk about being spiritually blinded. She can't even see an inch in front of her spiritually. That's because she cannot pass her own misconce- misconceived ideas about what a king should look like on the outside, which is what Solomon would, would call it futility. <laughs> and then David responds. Verse 21, David replied to McCall, It was before the Lord. This phrase happened six times in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It was before the Lord. I was celebrating before the Lord who chose me over your father and his entire family and appointed me as a leader over the Lord's people Israel. I'm willing to shame and humiliate myself even more than this, but with the slave girls whom you mentioned, let me be distinguished. David says it was before the Lord. And then he says, in li- I, think, I think what it's saying here, in life, this should be what matters the most to us. To live before the Lord. Michael cared too much. McCall cared too much here about the appearance of things. And David was so concerned about the the heart's motivation. McCall cared about the status of a new king. David cared about God's holiness. McCall was concerned about what matters, what others think. And David was only concerned about what God thinks McCall was concerned about David being humiliated, and David was more concerned to follow God's word than to be humiliated by her own perception. And McCall could not reason, could not find a reason here to celebrate, but David's reason was because God was present, and God is enough. And that's why he rejoices. So let me go back and say this to you sadly every decision that we make in life has consequences and that's why i said earlier every decision matters and this passage is going to end on such a negative note apart from the glory of god being in in the midst of the nation of israel this text ends this way now mccall Saul's daughter this is the third time had no children to the day of her death now, most commentators here, they, they will say that this was part of the judgment that had fallen over the house of, of, of Saul, who had been rejected by the Lord and who had failed to, receive, um, failed to receive the new thing that the Lord was doing through David. This is tragic because this is the last time in 2 Samuel that her name is going to appear. And contrary to David, she is joyless. Now, let me give you just something to conclude our time here. And this is my appeal to you this morning. When the Lord is central to our lives, we honor Him by following His word. We find our happiness in reverent fellowship with Him. And we humbly identify as God's people. So. As you approach the king, approach him with reverence through his word. And here's my desire and my request for you let his holiness dwell among his people. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you are a holy God. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross of your only son to give us not only life, but to give us life in abundance. Father, I thank you that David understood that to allow your ark and your presence to be in the midst of of your own people. It needed to be done by your own word. And I pray that we would not fall short of that. This church and this nation does not move forward in relationship to our spiritual walk apart from your word. May you open our eyes In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, and I'm going to start backwards, because after 2 Samuel chapter 6, I think there's a moment of reflection. Paul says when he writes to the church in Corinth, he says this, for this reason, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now, unworthy manner was the manner that David attempted to bring the, the Ark of the Lord and God's glory back to Israel the first time around. But whoever drinks and eat in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, verse 27. Verse 28, a person should examine himself first, and in this way, let him eat bread and drink the cup. For the one who eats and drinks without careful regard, for the body eats and drinks judgment against himself. So what I want to do is, if you have a little cup like I have in my hand, I would love to give you a minute for you to pray and ask God to reveal himself to you and you need to come before him without being in a position of judgment so please would you just bow your heads and let's pray together that the lord would show himself in a mighty way and that we would honor him through this time of remembering what he has done for us we thank you for allowing us to come together. Thank you that we can use this moment to remember what you have done, the amazing sacrifice of your son to pay for the penalties of of our sin against you. Father, we often talk about your love, but we forget that you have loved us abundantly. I pray that you would forgive us of our sin. We confess that we do have sin in our lives, that we're not righteous as we should. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit that you would guide us and direct us. Help us to be holy as you are holy. Help us to remember and never forget what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord... But I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you think it, you think, you drink it, in remembrance of me. For every time you eat and drink, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." Thank Father, thank you so much. For shedding the blood of your only son the blood that gave us life and that gave us life in abundance we praise you for this day thank you once again for allowing us to be together as a body and i hope and pray father that you would cause us to grow closer to you that we would not only see your holiness from far away but that your holiness would be so close to us that we would be a reflection of you to the world. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.